Happy Memorial Day, friends and taphophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle. In honor of Memorial Day and our podcast launch, I wanted to do a special bonus episode. And with us launching on Memorial Day, I wanted to share my Memorial Day with you talking about this special day. And I wanted to take you to the cemetery that started all this for me. It's a little town in Arizona where I grew up, Thatcher, Arizona. I want to share a miraculous story of a brave hero in honor of our men and women in uniform. Thanks for joining me. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Memorial Day is an American holiday observed on the last Monday of May honoring the men and women who died while serving in the U.S. military. Decoration Day was how it was originally known in the years following the Civil War. There were so many that lost their lives in this war. Memorial Day, as Decoration Day gradually came to be known, evolved as American military personnel would fight and die in more wars, including... World War I and II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Memorial Day became an official federal holiday in 1971. Many Americans observe Memorial Day by visiting cemeteries or memorials, holding family gatherings, and participating in parades. Today, we are commemorating Memorial Day by honoring a veteran of World War II, a man full of courage and faith that lived through a Nazi prisoner of war camp and the Black Hunger Death March of 1945. My Memorial Days as a child always consisted of getting up early and going to our local cemetery. Now you have to get up early in Arizona because at the end of May, it's a scorcher. So we had to get up, beat the heat, and get up to the cemetery because that was where my great-grandparents are buried. And then later, my grandparents as well. My grandparents were a huge part of my life as I grew up living across the street from them. They were the kind of grandparents that attended all your events from fifth grade band concerts and basketball games to high school graduation, weddings, new homes, every single little thing in between, all the special occasions. They were always there and a part of my life and made me feel so special. My family has honored our loved ones every Memorial Day my whole life. The family of four children and their spouses, their kids, and now their spouses and grandkids, everyone comes out. We bring bouquets of silk flowers and we take out the weeds, rake the gravel, leave it looking really nice. Those of us who live out of town even make efforts to be there for Memorial Day. We usually go to breakfast all together afterwards. In fact, I'm probably there right now. We also discovered, as I was dating my husband, that his family was also from the Gila Valley. He has three generations of family members 
buried in the same cemetery. So now we include his family as well as bringing flowers, cleaning them up. It's kind of a special place for us. So I don't see the cemetery as a scary place. I see it as a holy place where our loved ones are placed after passing from this life. It's got everyone's best loved people. Their grandparents, their favorite uncle, their tiny baby girl, their mama, their daddy. Our tradition is probably the reason I feel the way I do about cemeteries. I'm interested in who is there and what their story is. And I think that all people are important, special, and interesting. The famous and the everyday people like you and me. And we all have a story. So I wanted to talk about this veteran from my hometown. His name was Staff Sergeant H. Lyle Grant. And he was a World War II veteran and prisoner of war. And he was also a family friend. He was an incredible guy. I had many great interactions with him and his wife. One of my favorites was while I was attending Eastern Arizona College and in the music program under Dr. David Lunt. Every year at the end of our fall sing program, we would sing the song Golden Dream. And if you're not familiar with it, it is from Disney's Epcot Center. And we would always invite local members of each division of the armed forces to come up on the stage while we sang. Lyle Grant was always one of these men. In the middle of the song, there's this break, and there are speaking words by JFK. He was giving his speech about, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And then it has the part from the speech by Martin Luther King when he says, I have a dream this afternoon that the brotherhood of man will become a reality in this day. And then it plays the voices during the moon landing. The music swells. And one of the military men would call the others to attention. And there was a flag that was right there by them. But also behind the choir was an enormous American flag. As tall and wide as the whole stage would come down behind this giant choir. The entire audience would just come out of their seats to their feet as one to stand with their hands on their hearts. It was just one of those moments that literally is engraved on your heart. After the end of the song, Dr. Lent would gesture to our veterans and the whole place would just roar since everyone was already on their feet. There was respect and gratitude for those men on the stage and for all others, both here and gone, that gave what they did for our freedoms. I always think of him when I think about those performances He wrote his memoirs in a book entitled From Heaven into Hell. We learned so much about his experience and the amazing faith and fortitude this man was made of. And I wanted to honor all our veterans today by sharing just one of their stories. One story among so many. Sergeant H. Lyle Grant was stationed in Sudbury, England. And Grant was a ball turret gunner on a B-17 bomber. A ball turret gunner was the guy at the back of the plane in that ball underneath. He was charged with running two machine guns. It was a very dangerous position, but one well suited to his slender frame. While he was on his 12th bombing mission, October 5th, 1944, his plane caught anti-aircraft fire and took heavy damage in the right wing. They were given orders from the pilot to get out immediately. He had to bail out at 20,000 feet over Germany. 
in his own words from a poem in his book titled From Heaven into Hell, The Last Jump. It's when that parachute finally opens up, yanking your body to an almost sudden stop, so very peaceful and quiet after leaving that torn and burning flying fortress where flak from anti-aircraft guns smashed engines from the plane's right wing. The pilot's final command still rings in your ears. Bail out! Bail out! A forced jump into space from over four miles high. That billowing chute now lets you travel that last mile to Earth. Down, down at a fast runner's speed of recalling memories, loved ones, and home. Eight chutes besides your own should have left that plane. Only four can be counted. You pray for more. It is October of 44, and you know Hitler's boys are waiting. Hitler's boys were indeed waiting. As he drifted down towards enemy territory near their bombed-out target at Munster, Germany, he was sure that he had been seen and that his giant white parachute was giving away his location. When Sergeant Grant landed, it was in a pine tree 20 feet above ground. There was nothing he could do with the chute tangled in the tree, so he unsnapped his harness and dropped down to the earth. He quickly scrambled away from his chute, looking for a place to hide. His mind was racing of thoughts of what to do next. Do I just surrender? Will I get shot if I try to run? He noticed a thick growth of spruce trees and made a flying dive under the low-lying branches around one of the trees. He wrapped himself tightly around the trunk and pulled pine needles around him to keep from being found. He did this in the nick of time, for just then he heard shouts and gunshots. They had found his parachute. Shaking with fear, he could hear them beating the underbrush with bayonets and clubs. He prayed a silent and fervent prayer, one of many that day for much-needed help. I can't even imagine the terror he would have been feeling at that moment. When he opened his eyes after his prayer, there were a pair of German boots standing right next to the tree he was hiding under. He held his breath and miraculously the boots moved away. The search moved away from him, but he could hear them searching all afternoon. Before it got dark, the Germans used a small plane to lay down machine gun fire and bullets rained down around where he hid. When darkness finally came and all was quiet, he moved quickly through nearby fields and along hedgerows walking for hours toward the Allied forces. Around dawn, he found a barn where he hid in a haystack. He continued to move at night and hide in haystacks, ditches, anywhere he could find cover during the day. Around eight or nine days after bailing out, he walked to a farmhouse and into the barn, he found some eggs from the chickens, grain meant for the cows, and milk straight from the cow. He could see a family working in the yard and wondered if they might help him. He hadn't seen any Germans around and decided to ask for help. He believed that he could have made it to Holland. Maybe they could put him in touch with the Dutch underground. As he decided to try it and walk towards the house, a man ran out with a shovel in hand. Grant started yelling with his hands raised, American friend, American friend. The man grabbed Grant by the arm and hauled him into the house. There was a mother and young girl there. He kept pointing to himself and saying, American, and showing the American insignia on his flight jacket. He asked, Holland? They nodded yes. They fed him a slice of bread and showed him a little room with a cot he could sleep in. But then they shut the door and he heard a lock turn. He slept anyway. He was exhausted. 
but when he woke, there were German soldiers wearing the Gestapo uniform, and they grabbed him and hit him and pulled him out of the house. He had been turned over to the Germans. Much later in the prison camp, he realized that many Dutch people were trying to help, but the Germans were executing and sending those that were helping any POWs to the concentration camps. Sergeant Grant realized that the farmer couldn't risk helping him out of fear for his family's safety. He was questioned over and over by a German officer. He was told if he would cooperate and give the information that was wanted, he could get a shower and food and see his other crew members that had been captured. All he would ever give them, though, was his name, rank, and serial number. The officer became angry at Sergeant Grant's lack of communication and went on a tirade about the Americans' bombings were only hurting innocent children and the elderly and were not hurting military installations, that the Americans should be on their side. They should understand about genetic superiority. Angrily, the officer raised his fist and slammed it on the desk. Jews, he said through clenched teeth, were taking over so many of the profit-making stores and factory that if they were not stopped, they would eventually take over the German government. Sergeant Grant had heard reports of the German leader's extreme hatred for Jews, and it was known and documented by the Allied forces. A report from Poland's government in exile was that, as of July 1, 1942, more than 700,000 Jews had been massacred in Poland since the invasion of that country in September of 1939. He had also heard reports from Paris, France, Holland, Prague, and Vienna. As he looked at the hatred and anger seething from the man in front of him, he knew these reports must be true. He was sent to Stalag Luft IV. It was an overcrowded camp of 10,000 American POWs. He realized that he was actually one of the lucky ones to be alive, even though he was a prisoner. He also knew he would need a whole lot more luck if he was going to survive the coming bitter Baltic winter. They were allowed to walk around for a while each day, but with no body fat, they got cold pretty quick. Their meals consisted of a bone meal broth for breakfast and a thin watery soup of dehydrated carrots, onions, and a few potatoes later in the day. At the start of the week, each man would get a quarter of a small loaf of black bread. It was made with ground up barley and water. It was given to the prisoners by being thrown on the ground in front of the mess hall, and it was usually covered with green mold. But after the green mold was cut off, the inside was edible. In the beginning, it was difficult to chew or eat. But later, after they had begun to experience true hunger, they treated it like cake. Once in a while, they would get a parcel from the Red Cross. They would have to share a box with four guys, but they felt like kings when they got to eat their small amounts of canned corned beef, spam, powdered milk, raisins, sea ration biscuits, cheese, sugar cubes, and a small chocolate bar. They would also get a bar of soap, three packs of cigarettes, and a small container of salt. Although the Red Cross was sending the boxes regularly, they were rarely received. The German guards told them it was due to the bombings of the Allied forces and that the shipments had been destroyed. But he also noticed the American brand cigarettes the German guards and officers would be flashing around and smoking. Cigarettes became Grant's main trading item. A heavy smoker would trade his precious bread or other kinds of food for a few cigarettes. It was a good time not to be a smoker. Another hardship 
was standing at roll call every morning and evening. They were made to stand at attention and wait to be counted. If the number differed from the roll, the barracks would be checked and the roll call would begin again. As time went on and they became weaker and weaker, the hours spent at attention would become one of the most difficult things they did. He was able to write his family, but only two letters actually made it home, nearly four months after he wrote them. Part of one of these said, Dear Dad, Mother, and all my loved ones at home, Here I am, a POW in Germany. Your prayers must have been with me, for I am all in one piece, feeling all right, and probably a bit safer than when flying missions. So Mother and the rest of you at home, quit worrying about me. This war can't last too much longer. I hope. All my crew got out of the shot-up-and-burning-plane safely, which is nothing short of a miracle. We are all so very thankful. My every prayer is that all of you at home will be protected and free from harm or accident until we are all together again. They are treating us all right, all is well. Love, Lyle. He recounts in his book his experiences of unbearable Baltic cold, hunger, and humiliation. Grant said he kept his spirits high with faith, hope, and dreams of American food. Sergeant Grant said, It is hard to describe to anyone who has not experienced real starvation, how we could sit around the camp and talk about meals that were in our dreams. Later, we learned that talking about food is typical behavior for people who are hungry. Often, we would tell what we could eat if we could fix our own meals, and we'd discuss foods that so many of us had taken for granted back home. I knew that if I could, I would start with at least 10 or 15 hotcakes, half a dozen eggs, many slices of bacon, and a gallon or two of real milk, Grant said. How frustrating it was to know that so many Americans then, and especially now, take the many blessings of food and freedom they enjoy every day for granted. One day, one of the prisoners stole some food from one of the guards. When it was discovered, they were all made to stand out in the snow until someone came forward with a confession. No one stepped forward. Two hours later, the commandant came back out and informed the freezing men that if the guilty one was not caught, he would select ten men from among them and that they would be shot before their eyes. Still, nothing happened. The angry commandant eyed ten men and they were forced out in front by the guards who were ready to carry out the orders. A commotion was heard down the line. The guilty guy was pushed out of the line by a few around him. The terrified ten were returned to the ranks, and the unfortunate thief was grabbed by the guards, taken out of the compound, and was never seen again. They received a gift in the way of no roll call on Christmas Eve. There had also been an agreement by the Allied Air Forces and the German Luftwaffe that no planes, no bombs, and no fighting in the air would take place in the area on Christmas Eve. Then the POWs were allowed to light some small candles, as they stood in the center of the compound, many holding glowing candles, and listened to Christmas songs over the loudspeaker. Tears ran down many faces as both English and German voices sang Silent Night. And even though their hearts ached to think of Christmas back home, their families, the tree, and all the traditions they were missing, they considered this as a Christmas miracle, one that they would always remember.
In January of 1945, they were forced to evacuate the Luftwaffe. The march wasn't too bad in the beginning. They just walked down a road in the snow behind the guy in front of them. They had been told that it would take five or six days to get to another camp further from the Russian lines, who were getting closer and closer to Berlin. Five or six days would have been practically a walk in the park compared to what they actually did. They would be forced to walk for 86 days and about 600 miles. And those 86 days would be filled with beatings, starvation, frozen feet and hands, frostbite, amputations, lice, filth, degradations, thirst, and death. It would later be known as the Black Hunger March. Lyle had a buddy there with him, Adam Klosowski, who was the waste gunner on the B-17 crew. They knew that they were a good team. They had already flown 12 hectic missions together before being shot down, and they both knew that they had the will and the know-how to survive. So they decided to stick together throughout the march. They shared the two blankets that they had, huddled together against the cold each night, and throughout the march helped take care of each other through the illnesses and ailments they suffered. It's always such a blessing to have a friend, especially in the hardest of times. At the beginning, they had been marched past a large storehouse where they saw inside approximately 10,000 Red Cross boxes. All this time that they had been starving, and here were so many boxes of food. They were each given one box, which weighed about 11 pounds, with no room for this in their knapsack. They knew that they would have to discard some of this. They looked at everything inside and made their choices of what they thought they could do without for the next week while they were walking. Maybe it's a good thing they didn't know just how long it would really be. The parcel felt so heavy to them in the sad physical shape they were in, and they all mistakenly assumed that they would be getting more. But of course, that didn't happen. So many of them discarded so much of their box and then were starving for food for the rest of this march. The prisoners walked each day with little or no food, usually 12 to 25 miles a day. If they were lucky, they would get a small piece of black bread or a boiled potato from the Germans. They all became so weak, exhausted, and malnourished, and many suffered terrible foot infections caused by blisters from walking. The prisoners organized groups of those who were stronger to help the weaker men walk. They all became so exhausted that when the column came to a stop, every man would just fall to the ground. They had a wagon, and the very ill men that could not walk would be thrown in the back. When the wagon became too full of sick and dying men, someone would have to get out and walk again. The inevitable happened, and prisoners began to die. As the wagon rolled up to the next stopping point, the guards would let them bury their dead in local cemeteries. This was actually a blessing, for there was record of where the men were buried instead of just somewhere along the road. It's so difficult to properly describe in a short time the horrors of what they suffered on this march, but Sergeant Grant learned that he had to only think of today, not yesterday what he had suffered 
or tomorrow what they might face. Only get through today. He prayed constantly for help and strength to go on. When the Allied forces bombed the beautiful city of Dresden, Hitler became so incensed that he gave the order that all airmen were to be shot during the Black Hunger Death March, Grant said. This order was never carried out, they believed because the commanders of the prisoner columns knew that the Americans were treating the German prisoners of war according to the rules of the Geneva Convention. To kill the Americans might bring reprisals on the German POWs. Grant said that he and Adam Klosowski knew they had to escape, even though Grant barely had the strength to walk after a bout of influenza. Two days later, he was feeling much better. The Germans knew that General Patton was leading a fast-moving American armored unit in the southern part of Germany. The prisoners were being bottled up by the British on the north and the Americans on the south. As the Allies drew nearer, Grant said he wondered how soon the Germans might carry out their orders to shoot. Adam and Lyle decided the time for their escape had arrived. And on April 12th, the 69th day of the Black Hunger March, they found a way. One dark and windy night, the two men found a way to escape through a feeder door in the barn where the prisoners had been put in for the night. They saw two German soldiers taking a cigarette break under a tree in the rain. They got down on their bellies, covered up with dark blankets, and crawled slowly away, Grant said. The morning sun rose and the escaped prisoners headed northeast in search of General Patton's unit. We used the North Star at night to help us make it to the British lines, Grant said. We would use the railroad tracks when it got cloudy that usually ran east and west. After being starved to skin and bones, weighing in at 98 and just over 100 pounds, Grant and Klosowski reached the British lines on April 25, 1945. Sadly, thousands of American POWs died in the cruel death march. They were so weak that others needed to wash and clean and powder them for lice. The two were then given new clothes and boots. After attempting to eat normal food, they both fell to the ground in pain and with vomiting. Real food was too much for their shrunken and ruined stomachs. Two days later, they were flown to London and taken to the American-run 7th General Hospital. Lyle said he looked up and there waving in the English breeze was the most wonderful sight he had ever seen. The stars and stripes, old glory. With tears streaming down his cheeks, he raised his right arm and thankfully saluted this beautiful symbol. How grateful he was at that moment to be alive and free. He said, in spite of all I had endured, a very deep realization came to me at that moment, one that has lasted throughout my entire life. Any sacrifice, even giving up one's life, is worth the price to keep this flag free. Their terrible ordeal was over, 
Adam and Lyle now had real beds with clean white sheets and even pillows. After a week of almost liquid diet and vitamin pills, they were able to eat some of the food that they had gone without for nearly seven months. The physical ailments were actually easier to heal from than the mental effects of their imprisonment, the march, and their escape. His nightmares would not stop. Nearly every night as he slept, he would suddenly scream or moan, bringing a nurse rushing to his bedside to shake him awake. Only then would the nightmare stop. The prison camp, barbed wire, the 69 horror-filled days on the Black Death March, surviving in cramped barns, always freezing, starving. The 13 days and nights of terror as they tried to get to the British lines, being shot at by British soldiers, walking through a minefield, all tormented him during the nights. On May 8, 1945, Germany surrendered, this merciless and deadly war in Europe had lasted for five long years, but it was over. The end had come. Inside the hospital, people were cheering, while outside crowds of people filled the streets, shouting and laughing. Car horns and air raid sirens were blowing, while low-flying fighter planes dipped their wings and added to the noise. At last, victory in Europe, VE Day. He and Klosowski landed at Camp Patrick Henry in Virginia on June 15th and had to wait for an official discharge from the military. It was so difficult to say goodbye as they parted ways. After all they had helped each other through, Grant said, There was no way to describe the intense happiness I felt as the bus pulled into my familiar Gila Valley. I saw Mount Graham towering above my hometown, the fields of cotton and houses of friends all sights I had wondered if I would ever see again. The screen door swung open, and immediately I was in the loving arms of my mother, my father, my entire family. I was home. His mother made a feast to rival any Thanksgiving dinner and served him warm apple pie covered in vanilla ice cream, something that would literally wake him up in the night at the prison camp. Only this was no dream. He had finally made it home. Grant met and married the love of his life, Ione Bingham, and married her in June 1946. They were married for about 60 years. They had four children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and he lived a great life. I was able to talk to three of his children, and here are some of their dear memories of their wonderful father, and the things that he taught them. Uh, my dad was out flying and shooting up airplanes. Mom literally was a rosy riveter, you know, riveting airplanes together over in Vegas. Of course, they didn't know each other at that time, but uh, my mom with a couple of her sisters over in, in the Las Vegas area, they were truly a couple of the uh, Rosie the Riveters. That's what they did. Uh, I remember hearing stories of mom going in like at 4 a.m. in the morning and, and working in the plant. And, you know, at the same time, dad was overseas flying. They met on a Saturday night dance in a little oh. town of Pima, just uh, <laughs> probably less than a thousand people at that time. Mom says it took one dance. My dad was probably one of the most humble and kind people that ever walked the face of the earth. I think his life as a prisoner of World War II 
probably made him a little bit that way, if not a lot that way. He just was incredible. There's two things that probably stand out about my dad is number one, the older I get and the busier I get, I'm amazed even more of how he was able to balance his service to the nation, his service to uh, the community here, Mm -hmm. uh, his service to his job that he had for 28 years as a county recorder here in Graham County, his service to the church. And yet I can't ever remember where, when family wasn't the priority in all of that. I literally cannot remember a time. I mean, I don't know if he ever missed uh, a sporting event of any one of the children or school mm -hmm. event or his ability to balance that, of course, with mom, that couldn't be done without that. Yeah. That stands out to me. Um, I remember as a young child, he would make sure that whenever a flag was raised or we were at a parade or at a sporting event or whatever, that we stood tall and had our hand over our heart. And um, I remember even at a parade one time in Safford, Arizona, where they had just started the parade and the flag was probably three blocks down the road. But boy, the Grant family stood up and had their hands over their hearts. The other thing that stands out to me the most is, of course, it would come of no surprise that we were a patriotic family. Patriotism mm -hmm. was paramount in our lives to the point that some people would think this a little bit funny. And as kids, we probably felt it was a little overkill, I guess. I don't know if that's <laughs> the right word or whatever, but right. felt that it was a little overemphasized in some cases because the moment dad could see the flag, coming down in a parade, which are parades really big in small town USA here. Yeah. Dozen of them a year. By the time dad could see the flag, you better be standing with your hand over your heart. And you did not dare sit down until dad was ready to sit down. Wouldn't, you know, it was far enough down the road, a block before you sat down. Mm -hmm. And as kids, we I took that for granted. Now I get to show that to my grandkids and say, okay, this is what Papa did. You stand up, you get that, you know, hand over your heart and uh, mm -hmm. just, it's just what we do. So that's wonderful. And of course, my own children, certainly that way. And then now the grandchildren. So it never ends and, and shouldn't. His life continues. In 1996, my husband, Danny, heard on the radio that they were looking for local heroes to run the Olympic torch through parts of Arizona for the <laughs> Atlanta Olympics. And of course he responded and sent in a little bio on Papa and he got nominated. So that was really exciting. So at the time um, he was 80. We figured out he was 80 years old. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And um, he had his little Olympics t-shirt and his little jogging shorts and, and running <laughs> shoes. And um, we told him, but you can just walk. It's fine. You can just walk your distance. It might've been a half a mile. I can't remember, or a mile. I can't remember how far they had him go, but we were on the side of the road cheering him on. And he was actually holding a replica of, of the torch with the actual flame. And it was a very fun, proud moment for sure. 
he's just so cute. He just loves sharing his story. And I think he loved the attention and bless his heart. He was well deserving for that. Yes. yes. But it was just, it was just really fun. One other thing I remember really vividly is um, his desire, his want for sweets. He loved chocolate. I remember <laughs> reading a letter that, you know, wanting a hot fudge sundae, and he would dream about that. But as a young child and growing up through my teenage years and stuff, there was always, always, always a chocolate cake, double layer chocolate cake, chocolate frosting on top of the refrigerator. And we would have it every Sunday and with vanilla ice cream. And to, to his last day, he had chocolate cake and vanilla ice cream. And just every bite, you would just think, yep, he he's really loving that and remembering when he couldn't have it. And it was just it was just really cool. Also, as a young girl, I, I remember often he would get into his uniform that still fit him. He was a small man and, and never really gained a lot of weight or anything, but he, he would get into that Air Force uniform and put it on and, and he would go to different clubs like the Lions Club and Rotary Club and school events and um, devotionals and stuff at the LDS Church where he would present his story. And people were always in awe. It was five years ago. My husband and I had an opportunity to travel to Poland. We had some friends there, and we've always wanted to go back to where Papa was and find the prison camp and just be there. This was an opportunity that came up, and so we went on a journey, and we had my dad's book with us. We knew approximately where the prison camp would be, in Poland, right by the Baltic Sea. And so we set out on a journey, not really knowing, you know, an exact location. Oh, wow. And, um, we, we knew we were getting close and we had driven probably about four hours. We saw this building, had no idea what it was, but it had a flag flying. So we knew it was government building. We stopped and it was like a, like a Bureau of Land Management is what I would compare it to. <laughs> and um, none of us spoke Polish. <laughs> we walked in there with the book and the map and a woman graciously helped us. And then someone who also was an employee there spoke a little bit of English. And so between the two of them, they were able to tell us that the site, the town's name was in German because the Germans changed the names of all the towns when they took over that part of Poland. And she knew what that town was now called in Polish. And so that was this, the saving point of our trip. I don't know that we would have ever found it without that little tender mercy. We got in the car and started driving and found the town with its name in Polish and eventually found a little memorial, a little marker of the Air Force. It was the prisoner of war camp for all of those who had served in the Air Force. So there was a memorial there for those Air Force men that marked, here's the spot. And so we got out of the car and spent quite a bit of time there. We found like underground bunker type spots that were still there and visible. And then we actually found footings of where the, the buildings were. And it was was quite emotional to be on that ground, but just really special. The actual prisoner of war camp was just across this little street and it was out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was mm -hmm. not off a main highway. It was forest and it had grown over very deeply. And Papa had a map 
that had a cement pond, I guess, where they kept their water. And we were able to find that and then be able to, you know, kick some moss mm-hmm. off here and there and found actual brick footings for the actual buildings. If you remember in his book, when he talked about them marching, the Russians were getting closer. So they were going to march the prisoners to death, literally in the dead of winter. And he talked about this road lined with trees and then they would find empty barns where they would just pack the prisoners in there you know at night just standing up they couldn't even sit down or lay so we left the site of the prison camp that we found and we were on that road (laughs) it was really um amazing and we could see remnants of what would have been the barns you know still still standing still standing that was pretty emotional But, you know, one of those life's experiences that you wouldn't trade for anything. I I just think the more we can get closer to those experiences that they had, the more we realize that we're pretty strong too. And Mm -hmm. we can get through hard things. If they did that for us, then (laughs) we can try a little harder. (laughs) I have one other story that's quite personal to me that uh, I found out about. We're raised with dad for years and years, and he did countless devotionals and mm-hmm. countless events and we were all part of that he made sure of that when i was i was uh, flying and selling helicopters back uh, that would have been 1990 or so i was doing well for myself and so i planned a special surprise for my dad i had traveled overseas a lot because of the the helicopters and and the sales and flying them I went to him and told him that I had planned the trip to Germany and I had found out where Stalag Loop 4 was, was and some of the railroad tracks that he followed as a prisoner of war and says that, uh, you know, everything on me, Dad, or fly over there and spend a week or whatever and do all of that. And uh, with tears in his eyes, he says, son, I can't do that. It was the first time in my life, and I'm a grown man at that time, it's the first time I really realized how it, what emotional toll it took on him. Never knew that, ever, until that moment when he says he just could not go over there and visit that again. That was an eye-opener uh, at that point in time in my life that I truly realized, wow, this just wasn't stories. This Mm -hmm. just wasn't his book. It affected him so much that he could not go back, obviously, because it would bring back things and memories that he would not want to remember. I think that would have been, for him, he knew his limits, and I think that would have been too much. And although I find, you know, it it was healing for him to talk about it and share it and write about it Mm -hmm. and all of that, we couldn't get him back there and we could not get him back up in a B-17. We tried to, you know, they have the B-17 where you can pay for a ride in an old B-17 here at Falcon Field. And he didn't want anything to do with getting back oh, up. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So there were a few things wow. that were a little bit too, too raw. That was a turning point in my life. What this really meant to my dad, because up to that point in time, it was stories and happy to be home and Cinderella ending. And now the more I think about it, the more I realize 
the stories, they weren't detailed. They were there. Here's just the basics of it. Here's, here's kind of what happened, but this is not what I was thinking at that time or what, how was it affecting me? And that was, like I say, quite eye-opening. He hid very well all those emotional scars. Uh, we never saw that. Never. He, unless he never, he never let us see what emotional scars that must have left. He was able to bury it and it not affect him. So that, that says a lot for my dad. I think for me, the realization hit, you know, much later in life, like after I had my family even, and I would reread the story occasionally and maybe share it, you know, with others. And I think it just took me being a parent myself and kind of connecting with his mom even and what she must have gone through when she got that letter that he was missing and then you know that he was a prisoner that he'd been injured I just I think you can relate better and more deeply when you are a mom yourself or you you're seeing your dad get much older and you know he's not going to be around much longer and it's just a lot more endearing for whatever reason it I feel like It was just a story growing up in high school and I was proud of him and I knew it was him and he did it. But definitely for me, it was much later in life. And I would even go as far as to say our trip to Poland in so many ways just really solidified the sacrifice and the emotion and all of that that he endured. He was immensely respected and loved by all who knew him. And he spoke often about his time in the war. Lyle Grant passed away in 2008. He lived to be 92 years old. He's buried in the Thatcher, Arizona Cemetery, the same one from my hometown, the one I go to visit. I will be there today to leave my flowers and honor some of my loved ones that have passed. And I'll make sure to drop off some red, white, and blue ones for Lyle Grant. Thank you, Sergeant Grant, and thank you to all the veterans and their families. And thank you so much to all those in my life who have served our country. My uncle Harvey who served in Korea, my father-in-law who served in the army and trained troops, and his father who volunteered during World War II and served under General Patton. Thank you all of you men and women that I see in cemeteries all over this country. We see you and we honor your sacrifices. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.